0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
2: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt
3: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Marriage is hard, right? And it's it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues, there's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know, but what will you become? And if you do stick it out, and what will you become if you don't? I, I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe – there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer and there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, "Ah, oh, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry – because a guy says, "No, seriously, you are so lucky to have me." <laughs> yeah, it may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, it may not. It may not be what you think it is, and you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is, everyone's got issues, and if if we can't get real with each other then we're probably going to have to we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, You don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is, is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time i found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, And I feel love and I feel an appreciation for them. If I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out What does motivate them? There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you, right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you. Or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way their way we got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners we need to go find it in there just a couple of ideas folks to help you motivate your partner find the good let's do it let's work better on our marriages guys pick it up do your part come on it's all we got you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show with just the political race the way it is life seems kind of stressful doesn't it now it's summer so Sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed, uh, a great article that was out on June 8th. And, you know, we we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know you may not be thinking about is to increase, to decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to do, to, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym, take a walk, uh, anything that releases endorphins. Cause uh, with endorphin releases, there's the, the, that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So, anything. Take a walk today. And and maybe just because the news is tense, and you got a lot of people that'll be talking about it, maybe at work, take a break, get out. Don't just sit around the water cooler and, and keep talking about it. Instead, get up, go for a walk. Even if you just walk around your building or um, just walk around your wherever you are at home. So positive tool, just get some exercise in you just simple stuff, not you don't have to sweat it out. But Something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today too to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake. But also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time: eat whole foods. Don't drink your don't drink your sugars. Um, create a, a Create a space for yourself. Uh, One thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape and find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to talk to other people, and uh, they're calling them mastermind groups, but now more and more people have these Groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, If you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier, we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes, they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone, or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more, a softer name like Ben. So, you know, it's, it's just tone and it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's, it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of, of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication, when somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the, sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben. They're fine.
4: Yeah,
1: because sometimes like yeah. Kaylee and I will talk like that and she'll say that.
3: But she's really sad.
1: That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's
3: okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay. But her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could okay, you hear that? It's I subtle. I hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone, it's it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communic- communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and t- either taming your tone when you need to tame it down, or recognizing another person's tone. Okay, five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay, Ben. Don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay, tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you pay attention to this one. (laughs) This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it. Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you've noticed the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there are certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Losing weight is incredibly difficult, isn't it? No matter what method you use, it may seem impossible to prevent weight gain. But uh, it's possible, my friends, that you're missing a vital aspect that uh, so many of us overlook, the mental aspect. Our minds and are very powerful things, right? And we are here today to learn how to overcome our minds. Think about it. How does your brain impact your eating? When you get stressed, does your brain go into autopilot? Well, here to help us with this uh, in not just uh, managing our mind through weight loss, but also managing our brain in stress and other conditions is Dr. Laurel Mellon. She's a health psychologist who founded and developed emotional brain training. She's an associate clinical professor of family and community medicine and pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. And we're honored to have her on the show today. Dr. Mellon, thank you for being with us today.
0: What a pleasure, Matt. I'm so happy to be here with you, and I love your program. I've been listening to it and really enjoy the great work you're doing.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. Talk about this. I I was intrigued by your idea because so much of the time we're just getting into body, right? We're getting into the weight loss, the nutrition side. But in the end, so much of this is about our brain.
0: Well, you know, the brain is the main controller of our entire being, our thoughts, our feelings, our behavior. And the problem with the brain is, it's not the thinking brain that's in charge. It's That's the conscious mind. It's the emotional brain, the unconscious mind, that we don't even know is operating in the background. Hmm. It's telling us to overeat. It's telling us that we're bad or to, we don't have any power. And these uh, circuits in the emotional brain, up until 2007, we thought we would have to use medications, go to a therapist, go to a shrink, somehow to figure out what's going on in this elusive emotional brain. And it turns out you can really organize it very, very easily using neurophysiology. And that's just what EBT, emotional brain training, does. Oh, wow. It just says to you that you are essentially in five different levels of stress of your emotional brain, not your thinking brain, because it's not the controller. And if you can identify it on a five-point scale, one, two, three, four, or five, and use an emotional technique that's right for that, level of stress, you can spiral up to a state of connection where you don't even want the extra cookie. You're your most loving and productive self. Wow! The tools are absolutely magical.
3: I loved the article. It's because in my mind, I'm thinking, whoa, we can control this. It's just step by step by step. And I guess that's a heightening of our consciousness.
0: Well, you know, you probably know about mindfulness and yeah. meditation, and they're very well accepted. What I want you to think of is emotional brain training, EBT, is a combination of being absolutely present in the moment, yet being able to identify the level of stress in your emotional brain. So it's kind of like the X-axis, if you think back to math, mm-hmm. kind of being mindful, but there is a deeper level, and that's how much stress is going on in the brain, because essentially we have in our brain five different drawers full of memories, and these memories tell us how to automatically respond in life, and if we're at low stress, brain state one, it's low stress, high high joy, we have the top drawer of our brain activated, and everything is hunky-dory. We don't even care about it, whether we have that piece of cake, and we're really, really kind and loving people because we're drawing upon those memories but automatically and universally for all of us, when we go through more stress, and stress is part of everyday life, we can go down to stress level two, three, four, and 5. And when we're down in the bottom of the brain at stress level 5, we have no joy and no sense of connection, and we have extreme behaviors. This is true for all of us. So this is what EBT does. Number one, you come in and you learn the five techniques so you know what level of stress you're in and how to spiral back up to brain state one and so it makes stress management easy but once you have these tools you can do a lot of things and it's, it's sad to say but for example i had an early love affair where i fell in love with someone and they absolutely broke my heart mm. and i really believe those memories in the bottom of my brain when i was at the high stress levels which is brain state four and five reptilian brains in charge and they're stored there that was probably going to block me from loving again Because every time I'd begin to love, I would trigger those old memories. Without my conscious awareness or choice, the brain automatically does this. And it would get me stuck, stalled, judgmental, and I couldn't go forward. So what these tools do is, as you're going through your day, when you come up with something like someone's rejecting to you, you just use those tools and they actually pull apart the memories and let them be reconfigured in a form that helps you love. Rather than judge, hmm. so those memories from the past begin to fade, and so you take charge.
3: And and so because we our brain is it, it's it's going to go into fight or flight kind of mode, which I guess is the it's the uh, reptilian brain. And when it does in an extreme level, I guess is what you're saying. Like when we get to the fourth level or the fifth level, yes. it 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 overrides the system, and it's going it becomes automatic responses versus a, a chosen intentional approach to life
0: absolutely and you know we all have brain states fours and fives and they're actually good when I've I've written several books and you would as you know when you're writing a book and when you're trying to do something hard there's some hard moments and if you go down to brain state five and really try to figure something out that's when you're most creative because you have breakthroughs but then with the tools you spiral back up so you get that great idea and you don't have to live in a state of stuck stress so it's not that stress is bad it just we need tools so we don't get stuck in it.
3: Yeah. Does uh, so And and really what becomes automatic is our, our food eating response.
0: Well, that, that's what I'm most – quite frankly, when I was a kid, I had an emotional overeating problem. And I went to UC Berkeley undergraduate, and I became a nutritionist. And eventually I ended up uh, becoming a faculty member at UCSF. And I began specializing in obesity. I thought, my gosh. I have all this knowledge about nutrition. I hadn't become a health psychologist yet, and I'm going to solve this problem. Well, the problem is that in this country right now, the reason that obesity rates are still going up. Now, 71% of us are overweight or obese is because we've been focusing on the wrong brain. There are basically two major brains inside of our heads, the thinking brain, what we know, analyze, the plan, decide and I knew everything I could know about nutrition and how much I should exercise and when I should exercise and what I should do, and that plus five cents gives you a nickel <laughs> because the wires or circuits that control our three major brain structures, the amygdala, the, the, uh, the, the fear, oh, in other words, the fear center, the appetite center, and the reward center, they're all in the emotional brain. And if that brain is at stress level four or five, really stressed, all of them flip the switch toward weight gain. So we've been focusing on telling people what to do in the thinking brain, wrong brain. We've got to move it to the emotional brain. And you rewire those patterns so you stop even wanting the extra food. Wow.
3: It really is. I mean, I see trying to turn off those brains as well. One of the most difficult things we do in trying to get couples talking. And so, you know, okay. that, that's why I mean, I could, I could see a lot of use for this there as well.
0: Right. The idea is that a couple, um, in order to emotionally connect and look at all the literature on relationships, and many people come into, relation, into emotional brain training, into our telegroups, and they do it because they are not connecting with their children emotionally. They're not connecting with their, their spouses uh, emotionally, maybe even their coworkers. Actually, one of the hardest things we do with our emotional brain and these tools is to emotionally connect because this is how it looks. In order for me like right now to be able to emotionally connect with you, I first have to have my thinking brain, my the mindful part of me connected to my emotional brain. So I'm first and foremost connected to myself. So I feel safe. I feel authentic. I'm vibrant and I have integrity. That's a foundation. Then I need to emotionally connect with you and you could be at any level of stress. Stress in my Emotional brain, like all of us, has no walls. So if you're stressed, it's going to flow into my brain. And so I'm even going to have to be better at being able to stay connected and use these tools. And then if I can open the emotional pipeline and connect with you, I can have love. I can have sensual sexual pleasure, I can have loving companionship, and I can be forgiving. And so that's why couples come, because the hardest thing we do is intimacy, and it's the most important thing we do.
3: Mm. It's so interesting, and our brain kind of, again, at a level that we're not even really paying attention to, our brain is driving so much of our our, our failure.
0: It is, and we. the other thing that people come in, I was in a telegroup uh, last night and a woman came in and she said, I finally got it. And I said, well, what did you get? She says, I, I got that. I keep on repeating the same patterns over and over again. I keep, even if I stop overeating, then I start drinking too much or I start, start on technology too much or spending or hoarding or clutter. I just have one excess after another. And she, I said, yeah, that's because your set point or your brain habits down there in the fourth or fifth drawer of your brain and those circuits were encoded before the age of three or later during stress, and they do not go away by thinking you can 't think your way out of those circuits you 've got to melt them with these emotional tools
3: you 've got to melt them away great uh, great melt insight them melt them we 'll take yes. a break uh, we 're speaking with Dr. Lauren Mellon about um, EBT. In emotional brain uh, training, we'll come back. If you go to her website, ebt.org, you can find out more information about how to to start using EBT in your life. And we'll come back. We're going to have her walk us through this. How do we do it? How do we get down to that fifth drawer and turn some stuff off? This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. the matt townsend show is it time to lose weight could it be that your stress levels uh are at play your very stress could be driving your overeating and yet your brain because it's stressed starts to just play the hey time to eat time to save uh time to shut down the system so we're not going to lose any weight here you got to get to a level of understanding your brain, especially at an emotional level. It's called emotional brain training, and it's a wonderful um, tool to help us understand. And I think in the end, we can unleash a lot of our problems by, by getting better understanding of our emotional brain. Dr. Laurel Mellon joins us. She is a psychologist a health psychologist who has founded and developed an emotional brain training program. If you go to EBT.org, you can find out more about it, uh, even take assessments and and see how you can start to re, I guess, I don't know if you reboot the brain, but at least understand and, and move yourself from a stress level to a lower level of stress. Dr. Laurel Mellon, welcome back to the show.
0: What a pleasure. Thank you so much.
3: Is that, is it, you don't, you don't reboot it, you end up, you have to move from one level of stress in the brain to a, to a lower level of stress? Is that the goal?
0: I totally love your question because you're right on both counts. So let's say I take a nice deep breath and let's just do that right now. And I put my hand on my belly or on my heart and I check in with my body. That's where we experience our emotional brain. That's where we read our stress level. And so I say to myself really kindly as I'm walking along, I say, you know, let me check in with myself and see if I can spiral back to a state of joy, get out of this stress. And I say, what number am I? Am I at one, uh, feeling present with a slight bit of joy or glow, two, feeling good, three, a little stressed, four, definitely stressed, or five, stressed out, where the bottom of the brain is in charge. And if I say, let's say I'm at, at... At three and I say great I'm just gonna accept that No, I think I'll spiral up and I I spiral up and I'll show you how to do that that tool it turns negative emotions into positive ones but every time I spiral up back to a state of connection and well-being I not only make stress management easy but I change I actually rewire my brain so it's easier and easier to spiral up so essentially you're changing the brain's long-term habit so instead of its habit or set point, emotionally being in stress, it can be in that state of connection and joy. So you're doing both things. You're reconsolidating circuits, erasing them and making them into more effective circuits in the past. And secondly, you're actually getting a great spiral up to a different level of stress in the brain. And
3: both you're training the brain, right? You're teaching the brain to do this. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's great.
0: Yeah. it's And you know, there are only five tools and I first learned them when I, I first started I first use them with children to go to the root cause of obesity. And when it comes to obesity, we are doing such a disservice to 71% of our population by telling them if they just ate uh, unrefined foods, they would have a solution. That's not the case because when the brain is in stress, uh, apples, oranges, uh, meat, potatoes, anything like that is just like not what we want. We have unstoppable drives from stress to eat artificial foods, refined foods, as well as other excesses. It's just how the brain works. And so instead of fighting Mother Nature, you spiral up to Brain State 1 where you don't even care about the extra cookie. So people are judging themselves because they can't lose weight. They can't lose weight because they're not mastering their emotional brain. They're not taking charge of it.
3: And knowing you can't lose weight... Um, stresses you. So it's self-perpetuating.
0: It's self-perpetuating. All of a sudden, these judgments come. I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. I I don't have any power. Well, we do have power. It's by learning five simple tools that anyone can learn so they can take charge of their emotional brain. And then it becomes fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was working with, last night. There was someone, a group who had lost 40 pounds. These are telegroups, which because the emotional brain is the social brain, you learn the tools online, but then you use them in small groups with a coach that there's no therapist or no MD or uh, it's, it's simply a coach that's there with six other people and you practice them for an hour a day, oh, pardon me, an hour a week. And what happens is you come together and you support each other. The brain wants love most of all. So we were in this group last night and someone said, you know, I've lost 50 pounds, but I just got a really bad... Uh, eye eye injury, and I'm in a lot of pain, and I'm really scared, and when I I noticed that I started to get hungry again, Mm. and I said, well, let's listen to you spiral up. So she spirals up back to Brain State 1. She's, oh, I feel so good, and I don't even care about the food. So essentially, you, you need emotional tools to deal with emotional circuits, and it's emotional circuits that are causing our obesity epidemic. And everything that comes with it, diabetes, all the other problems that go with it.
3: I'm I'm assuming that this – just because our brains are so smart that we – if we're not careful, I mean, you really have to spiral up and emotionally change your state. You can't just pretend spiral up, right? I mean, I could see people faking this to please their therapist so they can get out of the room. But in reality, you're not going to feel great – and turn off these mechanisms in your body unless you actually change your emotion.
0: That's right. And, you know, quite frankly, Matt, the the issue is, that many people say, well, you know, we we have to think our way out of problems. Be- and that was really, that's how cognitive behavioral therapy came about. Right. There was a belief that Freudian was, you know, the Freudian way was wrong. We couldn't do anything with this big lump of an emotional brain and an unconscious um, way of operating. So we had to think. Well, it turns out that thinking is actually pretty good. It's just It's just way weaker than changing the emotional circuit. Mm. And up until now, if you said... To yourself as you walk through your day in all five different stress levels how do I feel you would have probably gotten in trouble because if you were at brain state four the feelings get stuck we get depressed we get numb we get ashamed we get hostile and so feelings aren't that safe unless you have these five tools because they're processed differently different techniques for every level of stress would you like to use the tool for for stress level three, and I'll show you how great it works. Yes. How simple it is. Yeah. Okay. So, so each
3: level guess. has a tool, right? And that, and each level you ha- has a
0: tool. So you have
3: to recognize the level you're on and then use the tool to get to the next level.
0: To, get to spiral back up to yeah. one. That's okay. where the brain wants to go. Yeah, let's go. And that when you spiral up, you, you, you affect the physiology in every cell of your body. So you have a huge... It's great. Stress. Okay. So I want you to take a nice deep breath. And remember, it's about your loving safe connection to yourself, to others, to the spiritual. That's what you're connecting with in the emotional brain. And you say, hey, take a nice deep breath. And again, put your hand on your heart or your belly. Really connect with yourself. It only takes about 20 seconds. You can do it at work. You can do it in the car anytime. And you say, hey, I get my safety from connecting to the deepest part of me and knowing my stress level. Am I at one feeling great. Two, a little stressed. Pardon me, two, feeling good. Three, a little stressed. That's what we're looking for right now for you, if you can be. Four, definitely stressed or five, stressed out. What would you guess for yourself? Just play Mm. with it. Three. Great. I'm a three. Okay. Okay. So in 2007, we figured out the tools precisely. And in 2012, we put it on in an online program, so you can just have an app and a website and do it. And we made it really, really simple. So all I'm going to do is say a few words, then you repeat the words for eight sentences, and then see what words bubble up in your mind. It's like complete the sentence you used to have as a kid. So the, the the four there are eight feelings you move through anger sadness fear and guilt and all of a sudden you know the, all of a sudden the sunshine comes out and you're in grateful, happy secure and proud let's give it a go yeah. are you still game yeah okay. I'm
3: trying to, I'm trying to write them down so I remember well
0: I'm, you don't have to I'm going to do it oh you're going to you. coach gonna me through coach. okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm here. You can take it. go for it I I'm going to say it and I need you to say it and you're using your thinking brain okay. and then you're going to let the wisdom of your emotional brain fill in the blanks it'll bubble up some words okay. I feel angry that. So say, I feel angry that.
3: I feel right. angry that.
0: Now pause, that beautiful pause, and you're letting your beautiful emotional brain complete the sentence. It doesn't have to make sense. Just a few words. Um,
3: I feel angry that I can't get everything done.
0: Perfect. Wonderful. Now we're going to do the second one. Okay. I Feel sad that. So repeat those words and then wait for the emotional brain to answer it.
3: I feel sad that. I'm not doing all I can.
0: Wonderful. So you've done two great. There's only only a few more. Okay. I feel afraid that. Again, repeat the lead in and then wait for the emotional brain.
3: I feel afraid that I will let people down.
0: Beautiful. One more negative and your brain will naturally become positive. I feel guilty that. Now, that's not shame. It's just I have some power here. I could do. have done that differently. Mm-hmm. I, I feel, feel guilty,
3: guilty, that guilty that I'm not... It's almost the same. I'm not doing all I can.
0: Now take a nice deep breath and the brain naturally goes to the negative to protect you to see if there's some, something that could be a threat to you. And once you've cleared away all those four feelings, now you're going to turn your attention and notice you can connect to yourself more deeply and all of a sudden say, I feel grateful that. Repeat that. I
3: feel grateful that. I'm learning how to change.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Take a nice deep breath. And I feel happy that... I feel
3: happy that it's this easy.
0: (laughs) I feel... I really do. Secure. I feel secure, even a little bit secure that...
3: I feel even a little bit secure that I can do this right now.
0: What? Woohoo. And I feel proud that I even yeah. a little bit proud.
3: Yeah, I feel proud or even a little bit proud that I did it on radio.
0: <laughs> Woohoo. That's great. So y- if that you're works. in a telegroup learning these tools, what happens is because the emotional brain is has no walls, your joy gets gets spread around. So it circles around the room. I can imagine that you're...
3: No, all my team here, they're giddy. My team are (laughs) just, they're all, they were all doing it. Well, some of them were, some weren't. But
0: yeah. And the the wonderful thing about that is that that is not just old-fashioned feelings. These are emotional circuits that control every cell of your body. And because of that, their health, happiness, productivity, and loving relationships are going to be stronger when they're, in that, that stress level one in those beautiful memories and they'll have a much better day.
3: So each level has a, has a protocol that you just take it through and then you to go to the next level. How long would it take somebody to go from a damage control level five um, to one?
0: All the tools take you right to one.
3: but so how long does that take as a process?
0: They, they could take three, four five minutes.
3: Uh, yeah, so it um, depends, um, but three to four, five minutes.
0: Between, yeah, Somewhere between one and five minutes to get to brain state one. That's great. And in that state, like let's say they were hungry and they wanted a blueberry muffin, when they get to one, they the drive turns off. And the reason it turns off, and this is extremely important, I think, particularly to our audience today, Matt, is that when we're at brain state one, the reward centers light up for higher order spiritual rewards. Mm. So these, these rewards of doing the right thing, there are seven of them in EBT, and you actually train your reward centers so they stop wanting the various excesses that we all get into that are artificial, whether it's technology or food or yeah. drinking or whatever that is. Train the brain to naturally crave being authentic, being in integrity, having vibrancy, intimacy, spirituality, mm. and it's, ultimately... It's like
3: creative. Maslow, right? You get to the higher need. We've, we've moved to the higher <laughs> ability.
0: It is. It is exactly like that. And what happens is the overall goal, and this is out of Rockefeller University, and uh, my devotion is to seeing the the potential for us to each take control of our emotional brain and move up our emotional set point. And when the habit is to be more in one, still free to move through all the the states, because every time you go down to four or five, you actually refresh your emotional architecture. You get stronger and deeper. Adversity actually helps the brain gets stronger. But if we uh, can just start by voting with our own emotional brain and have more of us use emotional brain training, get that set point up so we can be more, even a stronger force of love and light in the world, mm. who knows what could happen? Oh, yeah.
3: Love it. Well, it's helped. <laughs> I, it's helped me. Man, you moved me from three to one or three to two, I guess. And then I'd have Great. to go through the two protocol. But uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon, thank you so much. This is interesting, important insight EBT.org is the website they can go to right?
0: Absolutely and we have offers there where they can get into a telegroup they can do it online and they can learn these tools and ha- really take charge of their emotional brain and their lives.
3: Good stuff, good stuff. appreciate you again Dr. Laurel Mellon thank and you. uh, your great work there at EBT.org. We'll take a break folks. just elevated. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
4: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach.
3: Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Blame-o. Blame-o. Oh, welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, whether you get like, understand what we, uh, what we were just talking about with emotional, um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion... It's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So, the, the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me—I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself. You got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. Little coach's corner for you. We'll take a break. It's the Matt Townsend show, helping you find the good in the world, helping you become the best you can be. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
4: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At
2: Dr. Matt Show. Call
0: the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt
4: Townsend Show. Dr.
0: Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. And welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so, as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's, you know, it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden you've got nothing but time to just, you and your honey, to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay-at-home person and the other was out in the workforce and now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement. And so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone. With no more kids in uh, in the uh, in the nest, is that crazy? Sixteen percent increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major, you know, breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home. What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? you got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motor home and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> And travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But uh, you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out. How much each other is going to need? How much space will your partner need every day? You gotta figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just gonna to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it it goes south because now we now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're gonna watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that, you know, your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do if they're if they're cohabitating, for example. Women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to – how are we going to distribute the work every day? got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home, are we both going to work outside of the home, what happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids, you know, who's going to make dinner every night, who cleans up the dinner. I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire, and Andrew Steptoe brought it up, it's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical, okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring, what do we want our legacy to be as a couple, As an individual as well. What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say? At your funeral, what do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, This is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now, we need to maybe strengthen some relationships, we need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using, but what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow-up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time – if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Henry David Thoreau, in his book Walden, wrote, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. To front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Thoreau listed the the necessities of life as food, shelter, clothing, and fuel, but if he had written Walden today, do you think he would have listed a smartphone? as well. Our next guest is uh, the Pose Endowed Professor of Telecommunications at the University of Michigan, Scott Campbell. He's here to talk to us a little bit about solitude and how solitude affects us and how we are missing out on solitude in today's world. Dr. Scott Campbell, thanks for being with us.
1: Hi, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
3: Great. Uh, great topic. This whole idea of solitude, for for many, it's we wouldn't even recognize it if we saw solitude. <laughs> Define for us solitude.
1: Actually, this is one of the most interesting problems about solitude today, is um, in addition to technology, which we'll talk about, um, you know, I'm a scholar, so um, research and theory and measurement of solitude is a huge problem because all of the concepts of solitude, uh, you know, you're talking about Thoreau, um, right. And since then, um, into the 20th century, have pretty much been defined, and the tools that we use to measure solitude have been developed uh, before the digital age. And so, if you want me to define solitude, mm. technically, most scholars so far still it uh, as being alone, physically not being around other people, or not engaging with people you are around. Wow. Sometimes, yeah. And and I disagree with that definition of solitude. I think we need to bring it up to uh, bring it up to speed in the digital age.
3: It's so true, huh? Because you know, Thoreau went away to the woods
1: in a yeah. in a yeah. cabin. What's, and, and what's and what's interesting is about Thoreau. Is we you know we think of this as some sort of um, miraculous heroic effort that he did. You know, going off for a couple of years. Right. Really though, it was I guess a, a pretty short walk from. Um, from where he, he had a lot of friends, and, and he did have company come into his cabin. He didn't truly live entirely alone for two years. He had yeah. social interaction, and we can do this today. We don't need to carve out two years of our life and go move somewhere, you know. We can find solitude here and there, but we can't do it if we're not thinking about it and we're not, if we're not conscious of it.
3: It's interesting. You're a professor of telecommunications, associate professor of communication studies at the University of Michigan. What got you into solitude? What brought you to that topic?
1: Well, usually, the things that we study and write about um, ideally come out of some sort of theoretical problem that we're trying to solve, and and this is a theoretical problem, but the truth is, to answer your question, is last summer I reread Aldous Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, Hmm. and this is one of my favorite books. I'm a technology guy, and I'm I'm not necessarily pro-technology or anti-technology, I'm just interested in technology and social change, I love that book, and, um, you know, you can read it a lot of different ways. And the, way, the, the thing I got out of it last time was this theme of deliberate solitude that Huxley hits on and, uh, in that book. And, and the protagonist in that book um, is the only person in that book that appreciates solitude and seeks it out deliberately, and it, is, um, it runs against the grain of his futuristic, dystopian society. Um, it is um, almost a criminal act. It's pathological in that book to deliberately want um, solitude. And this just kind of opened my eyes because, my eyes. Because you know, as a communication professor, uh, myself and my colleagues, you know, we're really interested in helping people understand how we can be um, communicating more and communicating better. And this is kind of the other side of the coin. So honestly, it was just reading that book that kind of made me start thinking about this and start thinking about the problems of solitude today.
3: It's it is a it's a very um thought provoking idea that it could be that perceived that being going for solitude is antisocial. It's you know, it's um it's selfish. It, it could actually become even with our children, the child that plays alone, the child that is quiet or introverted might be seen as, you know, an outlier and, and not as healthy as those that integrate at every playground activity.
1: Right. And, and the truth is, um, you know, the, the, there's a lot, you know, solitude is, is a complex thing. There are different flavors of it. There's the flavor of it that is deliberate, like Alda Suxley's talking about. There's the flavor of it that's not deliberate, and a lot of times, that is not experienced positively. So I'm not saying solitude is something that we all need more of. Um, you know, it, it certainly children um, don't necessarily deal well with it. Um, older folks tend to deal better with it. Maybe it's because they're more used to it, uh, seniors. Um, but, you know, I think that we need to, to think of it not as, you know, necessarily antisocial, not, not necessarily a great thing, but it just kind of depends on the circumstances and... Individuals have different personality makeups, um, and, and that plays an important role in how much benefit we get out of solitude or whether we benefit from it. You know, mm-hmm. There's a lot of benefits, imagination, creativity, and a lot of people argue that it makes us better social creatures to be able to step out of our social interactions for a period of time and just reflect and sort of center ourselves. And then we're in a better spot to engage with other people and develop empathy and and all that. So um,
3: we had a, a Buddhist professor.
1: Oh,
3: complex... go ahead.
1: Oh, go ahead. I was I was just wrapping up. Just yeah, that it, it is a complex thing. I'm not saying it's it's something that's always good. It's not always bad. It just kind of depends. But it's not something that I I think that we think about, especially especially that deliberate form of solitude. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, is I think that deliberate solitude is more important today than ever, because the other flavor of it, the kind where you stumble upon solitude on accident that's really no longer mandatory. We don't have to experience that if we have a cell phone in our pocket, and we always do these days.
3: That's right, and you can always pull it out, and it becomes a distraction to a potential moment of solitude.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, I think just having it on you and having it on, I think there's a latent cognitive link there that will affect the quality of our solitude. If cognitively we're ready to be on call at any moment to have those links activated... I actually think that – I'd like to do an experiment on this, but I think that there's going to be a difference um, in how we experience solitude if we either – if we have the phone off or not with us, um, as opposed to having it with us and having it on. I think even that is a disruption, even if you're not talking or texting with anybody on
3: the phone. Right, right. Uh, We had a, uh, a professor from Harvard on who has been teaching at Harvard an ancient Chinese philosophy class. And he's he's loved. He's beloved. He's I think his name is Mike Pewitt, a wonderful uh, researcher as well. But he talked about this idea that we have of like the Buddhist monk being this solitude seeking on top of the mountain all by himself, you know, communing with the higher energy Um he says it's absolutely inaccurate. <laughs> the, the idea of Buddhism isn't that you go away to just only seek solitude by totally being alone all the time, but instead trying to find the spaces of solitude in the spaces be- in life and oh, with people. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and, and it's I,
1: exactly I, what you're I saying. I think that's a great message. And um, it certainly complements um, the message that, that I've been expressing lately, and you know, and and basically, my message is that we we need to be more conscious about those moments. Now that now that they're not mandatory, now that we don't have to experience, um, um, you know, being unplugged from others um, or not engaging with others, um, it's not mandatory anymore. And and a lot of people feel really uncomfortable um, in those moments. You know, that's a lot of times why people pull out their phone is they don't want to be perceived as alone or they don't want to feel alone or, you know, they want to feel connected. And I think that we need to be more consciously recognize that it's healthy to have these moments and that we need to cultivate them and seek them out because they're not just going to accidentally happen to us anymore, really.
3: What are you finding in your research? Um, and what, what is it, do you think, that makes us less you know, confident in those moments of quiet?
1: So there's, I, I think there's three things. Um, there's, I'm sure, many, many other things. There are three things that I'm interested in right now. I think three explanations for the, the problem of um of solitude um one of them sherry turkle is a professor at mit um she came out with a book last summer last fall called reclaiming conversation and uh her explanation is boredom basically which she says that um that we can relieve boredom at any time now with our digital devices Mm. um that we're, we're more equipped to avoid boredom than we ever have been in the past and that boredom explains the reason why people constantly will be pulling out their phones to avoid um, moments of quiet just on their own. Hmm. And I agree with her, but <clears throat> I've been writing lately to add two other things beyond boredom. One thing is that, A, I, I've done a lot of research that suggests that, that the mobile communication has become such an ingrained part of who we are. That we don't really think of it as much anymore. Now that it's not new, that now that it's kind of a taken-for-granted assumption. I have uh, other colleagues who are who are writing about that as well. But my point is that, like uh, texting while driving, some of this can be explained by just automatic behavior. The phone beckons; we automatically reach for it, or we have an internal experience or an emotion; we just reach for it. So I think that we're not thinking. We're not thinking is one thing. The other thing is expectations. We live at a time where the expectations to be accessible to others are really high, and I don't think we quite see that. I don't think we quite re- I think we're kind of like a fish who doesn't know it lives in water and mm-hmm. so it's taking out of the fishbowl. So these expectations, you know, teenagers feel, especially young people, feel like they have to be on call. They have to respond to messages immediately. That's a feeling that they have. And I think that that combined with this sort of less conscious use of, of our technology today. Also helps explain why we are not, why we just you know, find, why we avoid those moments of being unplugged.
3: It's so, it, it, we don't see, I guess, so you're saying the automatic patterning that we kind of have created, our mm-hmm. expectations socially, and then uh, Turkle's idea of boredom, or I guess, which is seeking stimulation, mm-hmm. um, those keep us from being able to stay in the space.
1: I, I, that's yeah. That's my argument, and I'm not saying that this is like, you know, the formula right, that, right. that well, explains it. But I'm saying these are, these are the three key ideas that I see being batted around right now.
3: Yeah, for sure. And uh, let's do this. Let's take a break. Come back with you, Scott. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Campbell about his article that he wrote in theconversation.com, dot com, finding solitude in an era of perpetual contact interesting insight. I think for all of us, we'll, we'll uh, explore it further in just a moment. Stick with us, folks, helping you make it through this crazy world uh, with all this technology and still being able to find the peace.
4: By the flash of
3: Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Scott Campbell. Scott is the Pose Endowed Professor of Telecommunications in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Michigan. His research examines social change associated with the update of mobile communication technology. Scott Campbell, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love this topic. Uh, And I'm, I'm afraid for my children, quite honestly, because... I have, I have six kids, Scott, oh, wow. <laughs> and I know. And the the issue I see are those things you were mentioning earlier. Maybe what you're kind of positing as some of the causes of our inability to get and feel solitude, uh, the automatic patterns. Everybody, the second they have a free moment, they pull out a phone. And I think you're right. We're not thinking. It's it's pure automatic.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, as a social scientist, I don't know if I would say pure automatic, but um, you know, we get we get kind of picky about explaining, you know, how much variance in this and that. But it's significantly, significantly a factor, um, especially in the research that I've done on texting while driving. Um, you know, we we still we still have the, this problem of of it's more than just texting now. It's all yeah. kinds of messaging and interacting and distraction with our technology. We know better. We know now. People know how dangerous it is. So why do we still do it? Why are people still doing this? And, you know, there's been some research that that looks at, you know, the goals that people have and their intentions and their cognitive, conscious processing. And my graduate student, Joe Baer, and I um, sort of flipped it on its head and said, well, what if we looked at the unconscious side? What if we thought about habit or automaticity as one of the explanations why people do this? And we found that it, it did, you know, not entirely explain the whole thing, but significantly it's a piece of the puzzle that explains why people still do this when they know it's so dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that it feeds into this this question of solitude as well.
3: I've even seen it just going to bed. If If I don't intentionally put my phone down, I will play on it for an hour and a half. And yeah. I'm a guy that needs to get to sleep to get up early to do the show. So how do we, as parents, as humans, how do we start to impact the automaticity or the habit-forming side of this?
1: Well, I think, I, I think a better understand. well first of all, okay, um, I think what I see now in the media is really the conversation moving towards addiction— and I'm not sure that that's useful. Right. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I, no. especially the popular press, I see an awful lot of people saying it's, it's really addiction. And addiction is a thing. I mean, it's a medical, it comes with an awful sure. lot of baggage and, you know, withdrawal symptoms and tolerance and all this stuff. I think habit is something that people are more willing to swallow. Okay, I right. have a habit, right. you know. I'm an addict. That's a big step you're asking people to take. But if you tell people, you know, look, think of it as a habit. Think of seatbelts. I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts oh, were yeah. not, mandatory. not well, mandatory. Do you remember we didn't uh, care
3: about people back then?
1: They could just <laughs> flop
3: all over the car, and now we're like my, my buckling parents, everyone. My, in.
1: Parents would, my parents would be arrested right now, for sure, for all the <laughs> you know, like laying on the dashboard. Or right, but, exactly. Uh, but if we think about, so that's changed, right? And why did that change? Because we educated people on how habits are formed. Um, in the 1980s, I think it was, maybe 70s, I don't know. But there was all of this attention to, you know what, if you do your seatbelt 21 times in a row, you will establish that habit, and it will become automatic. And people kind of got on board with that, right? Right. Um, Of course there are laws. We have laws against texting and driving, too. They don't work. People (laughs) still do it. So I think if we get people to realize the habit, you know, and habits aren't necessarily bad. Right. We we don't want to have to think about how to use a stapler every time we pick it up. We need that to be an automatic process. So I'm not... Thing habits are always bad, but if we think of this as a habit, I think it will help us become more conscious, maybe, and avoid those times where we, you know, automatically grab it, and then, like you said, you get immersed in it, and it eats up an hour, hour and a half of your time, and you didn't mean for that to happen.
3: It, because it is a, it is a, it's a habit um, that will just keep growing on its own. I mean, it's like there's no end to your ability to surf, to Netflix, to. Um, Pretty much any of its functions. There's yeah, no and, real end to it.
1: Right. And it's and it's and it is absolutely liberating and it is absolutely empowering. And it it, it is all of that and it's habitual mm-hmm. and it poses problems. Um like I said earlier, you know, I, I I don't want people to hear this show and think, Oh, Scott Campbell hates technology. He's anti tech. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm 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 more of uh, as a social scientist, I just try to explain how and why things happen, you know, and so I try to explain the good things. I uh, do research on political empowerment and mobile communication, um, which, you know, is, is giving people more voice. Um, is
3: this, that,
1: is, you know, this is one of the problems that needs to be explained as
3: well. I Maybe think. that's the answer, though, right? And so instead of talking about uh, the, the negative side, I guess, what if we talked about the uh, positive, the appreciative side of solitude? Yeah. Is it possible to make solitude more... Um, enticing and even an expectation of our lives so that we are constantly also seeking out solitude in almost a habitual way.
1: Yeah, and I, I think so. And it, and it doesn't have to mean that we, it doesn't have to mean that we, you know, we, we drop our yeah. technology. Get rid of your phone, right? Yeah, you don't have to cancel your account. You, you, just, you just have to find 15 minutes here and there where you can feel comfortable with yourself, you know, and just sit there. Um, and, and maybe, you know, you come actually to treat that as a habit. You mm-hmm. come to appreciate that, and you seek that out, and you feel refreshed, you know. And, and I think people really do actually appreciate these moments. It's just that they need to, I think, get in the, my, right, the right mindset and, um, and seek them out. Um, and right now we're just – I don't think we're thinking about it. As no.
3: Much. Well, in fact, you have a great quote um, that's pretty funny. If a person is alone in the forest when a tree falls – but they don't notice it because they're texting does it still count as solitude <laughs> it's such a great line they,
1: they don't they don't let us put that kind of stuff in journal articles so i know they, they don't the right,
3: they, they don't know don't what they're that? missing scott that's good <laughs> that's good writing right there is there an rda is there a recommended daily allowance for solitude is there a minimum amount we should have and you know at least
1: well okay so this gets at the problem i meant i was mentioning earlier, earlier. so the the last time we tracked how much solitude people got. It was used with, um, with um, diaries and surveys that only looked at the physical aspects of not being mm. around other people, you know, right. not engaging with people you know, um, physically in face-to-face settings. Um, and, and so really, no. Like we don't even know how much solitude people get, because we don't have any measurements for it um, in the digital age. I can tell you that the last time research was done on this that, I, that I've noticed, you know, pretty much before the digital age, um, you know, like senior citizens got something like 50 percent of their waking hours were, was in solitude. And so, you know, it would not be a good thing to say, oh, everybody needs more solitude. Uh, right. Actually, senior citizens, though, are more comfortable with it, the, the, the research suggests. But they
3: also probably are lonelier.
1: They prob- they might be yeah you know? um, and and yeah and like I said with solitude you know loneliness can be one of the ways that we experience solitude hmm. um, you know creativity and imagination and and um, reflection is another you know another set of ways but young people um, in that study adolescents they they got almost none I and know. they didn't want it and they didn't like it and I don't know what the RDA is or if I could come up with a recommendation. So quantity is tough, but I think quality is something I can speak to. Yeah. I think, And I think that if we turn our technology off, it will boost the quality of our solitude, and we might actually appreciate it more and seek it out more often.
3: And and then probably use – it seems like it might enhance our ability to use our technology. I mean it, it seems like solitude creates clarity for yes. for a lot of people. and It can. Yeah, and, and kind of pushes out some of the haze that – constant chasing of the dream and, you know, the latest Donald Trump quote, Um, (laughs) not to not to disparage. But I I guess your idea, though, is basically, we need to start having conversations about solitude and making it part of our, our, our conscious thought process.
1: If only if um, only if we value its benefits. If, if we do not value solitude whatsoever and we do not value the benefits of solitude, um, then maybe not you know and, and my role really isn 't to say what we should or it, we should yeah. not be doing it 's just to try to explain how and why things happen so i don 't want to impose you know my values for solitude on everybody else, but the truth is is that it does offer benefits, and that you know, we, we can enrich our relationships. Uh, one of sherry Turkle 's points is that it helps develop empathy towards other people. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's something that's worth thinking about. And, and again, I, just, I don't think that we're really thinking so much about it. So I guess, um, you know, it's, it's, there's different people who experience it differently and different personality makeups play a role in it. So I don't think that there's any kind of a formula as far as how mm-hmm. much people need. But I do think there are some considerations in terms of how we can increase the, the quality of our solitude and, and benefit from it. And I think that it does not have to come at the cost of being... Connected in our relationships, in our yeah.
3: Life. It also seems uh, like almost demographically. I mean, my kids. If 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 I told them, "Okay, solitude time," which we actually try to do, uh, yeah. we just call it quiet time, but no tech time. Um, they look at me like, "You're trying to kill me, Dad." <laughs> but the but so it almost is generational. But it might be a powerful discussion to talk even multi-generationally about, I just think of our grandparents that didn't have all this tech pressure and when they were home, they could actually be home or when they were fishing, they could actually be fishing. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if there's a way to integrate a conversation generationally. I think that might be fascinating.
1: Yeah. And and it is, I think it's important um, yeah. because there are differences uh, between the people like myself who have transitioned you know, as the technology became available as opposed to people like my son who are growing up with it. And um, it's a different set of um, expectations, a different set of norms. You know, young people do things together in groups with their technology that older people would be completely offended by. Mm -hmm. And for young people, in some ways, it enriches their experience. It can, you know. Right. Um, And so I think these conversations are important so that older folks can understand that young people aren't necessarily trying to be rude, but that this is, you know, this is how they live their life, you know. And younger people might benefit by talking with older folks about what life was like before Internet and cell phones um, so that maybe they can gain some appreciation of, you know, what it's like to go fishing and just be fishing. That's right.
3: Just... Take it in. Well, Scott Campbell, we appreciate you and your great insight. Keep up the work. We'll uh, have you back when you've made your latest and greatest discovery, when you figured out how to define solitude in the current day and age.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
3: You bet. Dr. Scott Campbell, good stuff, folks. Solitude. Oh, just some time to get away and think. How would it be? We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up the second hour of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world.
4: What's the matter with you, boy? You
2: too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach.
3: Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The solitude gap. Are you, uh, are you in the gap? Are you not getting enough peaceful solitude? A little place away where you can work your thoughts, maybe meditate, possibly pray, you know, read something that's uplifting, or, or even just sitting there in, you know, nature... I find even when I go on walks, one of my favorite thing to do is a walk every day and yet I still fill my head up with information, with noise, podcasts, interviews, preparing for the next day. We're constantly filling our heads up with stuff and um, it's probably not helping and where I worry about this uh the most is in our ability to actually handle quiet times and quiet spaces and almost the concept of reverence might be going away where you if you know if you're not one who maybe goes and and experiences a lot of uh either speakers or if you don't have a church setting where you're constantly you know in a place where you need to sit and listen it's probably getting hard for you for your children to learn to just sit still and to respectfully listen i wonder in the end how that's going to impact our abilities to hear one another you know i don't want to sound like an old curmudgeon like oh in my day we always respected everyone but Solitude and your ability to sit silently and think, is a, it's, I think it's an advancement and a step up in humanity. I think your ability to sit in, in a reverent, quiet space at a funeral, for example, and reverently sit there without your phone is going to have to be something we all can do and enjoy it. Instead of having to run out in the middle of the funeral to answer your calls. So I just suggest to every one of us, me included, yo, I'm talking to me. Are we increasing our ability to sit in the quiet spaces? And the quiet spaces could include, you know, listening to others, going to musical, uh, you know, events, watching a concert. But eventually reverent places where you're at a funeral or a church where you can sit quietly and actually turn your phone off. The weirdest phenomenon happening in my church is everybody has a cell phone and they're using the scriptures from that they're reading are in their cell phones or their technology. And I think it's creating a big temptation <laughs> Some people aren't getting closer to God because they're not actually reading the scriptures during their lesson. They're checking Facebook status. So watch out and make sure you yourself can do it. One other reason I bring it up is because your ability to sit in quiet solitude, practice on your own, where you can do that by yourself, it will deeply impact your ability to sit in quiet uh, peacefulness as you listen to someone else. The most intimate moments of life should be or could be possibly intimate, soft, quiet moments of solitude where two people can stay in the space together. I think personally your ability to be intimately connected to other humans is going to be directly correlated to your ability to sit in solitude and be intimately connected with God or with nature or with a higher power. You want better relationships with another person, then learn to sit quietly, reverently in connection to your higher power in solitude. You cannot attempt to be something with another human being that you are not by yourself. And that's true in solitude. So, a little challenge for all of us. Let's pick it up, practice it, something we can practice this weekend. Find a quiet time. Go on a walk, but turn off the headset. Do something different. Turn off the radio when you're driving. Put your phone away. million ways to be at peace. That's hour number two, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More information, more solutions to help you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend
0: Show. This is the Matt Townsend
2: Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
2: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
3: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. Your mind and uh, the impact it has on life. And when, I, when I'm when i coaching people in my um, practice, I the mind really is one of the first big barriers that has to, Has to be evaluated at least in order to create some movement, in order to create a change. Um, It's not just trying to teach them skills. I can teach couples to talk. I can get them communicating. I can get them to maybe hold off before they just blow up and listen to somebody. But there are certain thoughts that are constantly stewing in our lives or in our minds. And those thoughts may um, deeply impact. What you do, what you feel. So, my basic belief as a coach is that our thinking, whether it's conscious or subconscious thoughts, whether you're actually intentionally thinking about the thought or whether it's just something that's, you know, some undercurrent belief that you have, it's going to generate feeling. Thoughts tend to generate feelings. Feelings tend to generate doing what you do, and doing tends to generate what you're becoming. And if what you're becoming doesn't jive with what you want to become, then you're going to be out of integrity, which will generate feeling, right, and thoughts. So the pattern goes thinking, feeling, doing, becoming over and over and over. So here's some thoughts that you want to make sure you you don't have running through your operating system. and And just start questioning it, like, what made me go off right here? Why did I start to act this way? That's what I was doing, yelling, screaming, whatever, um, just pulling away, ignoring my family or my spouse. Why was I doing that? Go back to the feeling behind it. There was something I was feeling. By the way, motivation, for those that want to understand motivation, uh, motivation is the feeling that generates the doing, right? Um, so that's there's power in understanding the uh the feeling and the doing, there's also power, also maybe more power in understanding the thinking behind the feeling. Um, Here's an example. Do you tend to have a thought that you don't have a choice in life? You don't have a choice. I've got to do it. Don't even have a choice. I mean, I don't even want to do it, but I've got to go do this job or I've got to go, you know, take my kids to here in this place and that place. So if that is the thought that's underlying it um, and the belief, it's going to generate a feeling and the feeling is probably obligated, forced. It's going to be an uglier feeling if you don't have a choice to do something, which will then generate how you go do it. Think of how you do something you didn't want to do. So a kid that throws a tantrum up to an adult that, you know, ruins a trip that they didn't even want to go on. Um, it, it's going to be acted out. So, if you do, you have a thought process that you're trapped. You don't want to do what you're doing. You don't want to be in the life you want to be, you're in. You don't want to be in the marriage you, you're in. Another thought that a lot of people have is that life is easy or life should be easy. And then they're amazed every time it's not easy. So, if that's the way that you, if you have a belief that life should be easy and yours isn't, Then you, then you obviously think I got to change my life. I got to change it, and you might feel misery even though you got a pretty good life. It's just normal. It's hard. Another belief is um, that uh, the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. Right. So if it's bad now, some people believe it's just it's just that's your life. It's always going to be bad. Or do you believe, you know what, no, life's going to change. Just give it a couple of years, give it a month, give it a two, give it a week. It's going to get better. Do you also believe that uh, everyone else has it better than you do? Right? There's people that believe everyone else just has it better than you do. Um, some people have a belief system that it's just too late. A value system, maybe something in their mind, like it's too late. You know, It's too late to change my job. It's too late to become something that I want to become. Some call it just bad luck, you know. I just got bad luck, bad luck. Everything I touch is just goes bad. Um, some some think of this optimist, you know. You know what? The situation it's it's going to get better. Some have that automatic, you know, reply. Some no, 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 it's just going to be worse. But whatever your view is, it's yours. And if you, you're going to keep suffering the feelings that come from that thinking. And you're going to keep suffering the doing or the lack of doing that come from those feelings and those thoughts. So when I coach somebody, I always ask them to go back and try to evaluate the thought or the, the thought, uh, the feeling, kind of the mood that drives you to keep doing what you're doing. And any time you spend looking at it is valuable. Trust me. Any time you spend recognizing the thought that's preceding a lot of these feelings you have, the better off you're going to have. You're going to actually find a way to turn this around. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We talk about beauty, um, and we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to, we want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about because when you think of you, you are not just you. You are made up of a body, you're made up of a mind, you're made up of a spirit, you are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um, As you try to grow self-esteem, you got to focus somewhere. And my concern is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right? A great source brings you the chemistry, you know, it allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you, you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else, you can be faster, you can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs, you can drive the nice car, something to put your body into, you can buy the best clothes, and interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while, but eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to, you're going to jump into your mind, And the mind is where you, you know, you want to start, you know, having some power. You want to be more popular. Do you want some of the things that are less tangible? Not a car necessarily, but you want prestige. You want popularity. You want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car is great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you for your car. So as you move into your mind, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to like it. Your mind likes, you know, looking good. It likes, being popular. It likes having, you know, maybe not even you're not even going to sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So, your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you, because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be better or just worse than everywhere else. And your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either or. So, the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it, it's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child. It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you got to be okay with yourself. you got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've or the highest esteem I have is knowing that I'm a child of some of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We do. We watch these shows or these television news moments. Where we hear of a child in a car, or lately it's even been animals. Um, I mean, it's always been animals, but now people are; these kids are dying, right? And apparently, we are at a higher rate of deaths with children in cars this year than um, last year. We've already passed last year's totals of death of children in in these in cars that were left in cars. So. That's one of the reasons we wanted to focus on this topic. Also, I want you to notice that um, how quickly we are to judge and to be uh, so angry because of the innocence, right, of these these children. They didn't do anything. They didn't. They were innocent here. But one of the things to remember what uh, Dr. Diamond was teaching is there's very universal issues at play here, and you have memory and you have battling, kind of dueling purposes in your memory. One memory is there to get you habitually to just keep doing the things you do. And another is, you know, the, the perspective memory to get you to, re, you know, don't forget this. But as for as mad as you are about somebody leaving, um, another parent leaving their child in the car, and you can't explain that or understand it, how many times have you personally been driving down the road habitually in your habitual uh, memory, and you don't even remember driving somewhere. You just got in the car and went to grandma's and put it on autopilot. And just think about that lack of awareness, right? Think about what happens when you get in autopilot. Yeah, sure, you'll never forget your child in the car, but you will drive 75 kind of brainlessly, and not, and you know, and be thinking of something else. So, as quick as we are to all judge somebody that makes a mistake like that, and that's a, I'm not, I don't want to diminish that. That's an enormous mistake, and it is a mistake we can't make. But people do, and they will statistically, you know, millions of parents, they're going to make mistakes. Um, but your need to then crucify this person, your need to then diminish them, to beat them up, and to get online and make comments like you're informed. Like you would never make a mistake like that. I promise you, if we followed you long enough, you have. You do. All the time. If you forget your phone somewhere, if you forget to pick a child up from something, if, you, if you've, you're if you you going to make a mistake... And that's the hard thing about being a human on this earth is we make mistakes and not all mistakes that we make are equal. Sometimes you make a mistake driving and you accidentally kill somebody and it ruins your life. And it's a mistake. It's a pure, simple mistake. So people make mistakes. Let's, let's just recognize that you're part of that group, right? You're not part of the deity and God that doesn't make the mistake, You're part of the group that makes mistakes. So be careful how you judge one another, right? Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as you watch the Olympics uh, and you see all of these team sports, you think, man, they're killing it. They sure play well together. Wouldn't it be great to work that well in your own workplace? The, you know, it's uh, it's not an easy thing to create a strong team, a powerful team, but because, uh, you know, there's always a star here or there. There's some that like the meeting, some that don't, some that want to talk, some that don't. How do you build a team that can uh, be a high-performing organization and yet uh, especially get results that that we have to get? In the end, it's not easy. So we brought in uh, a pro to talk to us about it. Don Yeager joins us. And Don is an award-winning keynote speaker, business leadership coach, and eight-time New York Times bestselling author and a longtime associate editor for Sports Illustrated. Today he's here with us to talk about 16 things high-performing organizations do differently. Don Yeager, thank you so much for being with us. Matt, thank you
2: for having me. I appreciate it very much.
3: You bet. What a great um, time, really, to be talking about teams. And you see it. I, like I, I was watching the other day water polo, which I don't know what it is, but every time I watch it, I feel like I can't breathe. <laughs> and I don't know what that that's all about, but I'll check with my doctor. What what is it really that makes a good team? Is can a leader make that big of a difference?
2: Well, yes, absolutely. I think that there's there's no question that when you can when when you can set a bar for people, and when they can appreciate that, and, and that then and the leader, by the way, does not have to be the manager, the owner, the the leader can be can be one of those on the team, but uh, right. when when someone steps in and says, "This is this is the environment we're going to create here. This is the way we're going to lead, and the way we're going to the way we're going to uh, this is what will be valued here." And here's and here's how I'm going to prove it. Because every time you do this, I'm going to value you. I'm going to acknowledge you. I'm going to uh, and it, I'm going to engage with you. If you can create that kind of environment where people. Appreciate uh, something bigger than themselves, right? That's what a team really is. Right, the ability to get a group of people to to contribute to something that they couldn't contribute, they couldn't they couldn't achieve on their own.
3: What What are Uh, some of the things you're seeing uh, in the Olympics, or even just you know as as countries organizing the Olympics? Anything standing out for you that that seems to kind of stand out as a as a strong principle for leadership?
2: Sure. I don't. I think the number one answer. So, uh, the book that you're referencing is is based on uh, about 110 interviews, uh, 110 conversations with the best team builders in the United States, right? Uh, team builders that I've had the chance to work with, and then another dozen uh, business leaders who are leaders of exceptional organizations, large companies that are very that are that are uh, that are continuously successful. And the number one answer that comes up when you ask them, how do you create an environment that allows you to win year after year, it's that you have to have a sense of purpose and that, that you collectively, you as a team, need to know who you're in service of and know why it matters. And, um, and so the Olympics are the perfect place for that discussion because for many uh, on these teams, and especially in a lot of other countries, being part of the national team, being representing your country uh, it's the highest honor. It's the greatest thing you can achieve. Right? That that walk through the tunnel into the opening ceremonies of the Olympics is the highlight of of all you've achieved all you've worked to achieve in your entire life. Mm. So interestingly, that this concept that you're, you know, this idea of what can you what can you go? The Olympics are a perfect place to see it because there are so many great teams there that are built around a concept of we are in service of something bigger than us right yeah we're we're uh, and 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 nationalism is a great place to do it right um if you believe your company is involved in uh in in changing a community that's a great place to do it uh wherever it is if you can if you can find a way to put a face on the um the the service you're doing for others your team comes together
3: differently oh yeah and i mean it's got to be hard too, when you have you know massive egos in the way as well, because it seems like it might interfere with the purpose. You, you mentioned that purpose is to know who you are in service of, but and sometimes the, it, you might have an ego on the team that, that is only maybe in the service of themselves.
2: Yeah. So, again, we'll stick with the Olympic example. That that's that's where creative and innovative and thoughtful leadership makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got uh, our USA basketball team. Um, it's an example I use in the opening chapter of the book. Actually, uh, when they when the team was struggling, they had finished with a bronze at the Athens Olympics. Uh, they'd finished sixth in the world two years earlier, so you know we were no longer the the world powerhouse in basketball that that many people thought we should be. They hand the team over to Mike Schleske at Duke, and and he immediately creates re- realizes that if I want to create a sense of service, if I want our team to believe. In service of something bigger, who can I turn to? And he chose the military, right? Mm. People who also wear the letters USA on the front of their jersey every day, uh, but who do so with a uh, for a far different purpose. And he started bringing in wounded warriors to talk to our players. He started bringing in. He started taking our players on trips to to Ellis Island. He started taking them to to West Point. Uh, and then, and then a few years ago, he took him to Arlington National Cemetery, and it's this really powerful story. Wow, but, that's but brilliant. He, he wanted our players to realize you are really extraordinary, but today you get to be part of something bigger than you. Right, and enjoy that because it's a special place to be in your life. And it's again, he put a face on. He put a face on who they're in service of, and that's one of the great challenges that a creative leader can take on. How can we Put a face on who were who were uh, whose lives were altering by doing good work
3: mm. one of your points uh, and chapters of the book um, is is really about your culture and how how to allow culture to shape recruiting. Talk about that. what do you mean by allowing a, the culture to shape recruiting
2: sure so one of the great challenges that happens I think with a lot of people uh, in the uh, especially in the corporate world is uh, it happens in sports too right in sports we get wrapped up as fans or whatever, how many five-star recruits did our team bring onto their roster? Uh, in, in business, we might say, you know, what, what university did they come from, right? You know, right? What's the pedigree of the person? Let's, let's get caught up in resumes. The truth is that the great teams uh, are less fascinated by stars on recruiting profiles or, or pedigrees they are more caught up in here's what works in our team let's first off before we hire anybody, let's know what works best here what do we again this gets to culture what do we value uh, what gets you elevated in, in our environment what, what gets you fired right that, those are your cultural uh, their basic your baselines for culture are, are like what what do you, what gets you uh, a, a raise at a company and what gets you fired? Those are your two two kind of of baselines. And once you know what those are, then you go out and you realize, hey, uh, now let's hire people that only come that that, that are going to come here because they fit, not because they they look good on paper. And um, in, in my little company, I own a couple small companies in Tallahassee, Florida, and uh, you know we have a culture document. in our these these are the things that work in our company. You know one of them, for example, is that we do not micromanage because we're too small, right? We don't yeah. have time to. So when we're in interviewing somebody, we slide that document across the table, and we say, by the way, this is what works here. If if any of that doesn't resonate with you, if and I'm not passing judgment on you. Like if you need micromanagement, that's okay. Some people do. You'd be better off not coming to work here.
3: Yeah, this right? won't work for you.
2: Right. So you cut it off early, but you only do so if you know what works for you and you can express it uh Clearly and openly, and most people can't. Most people, you know, innately, you know what works in your company, but most people never sit down to kind of scribble it on a sheet of paper. Right. And once you do that, then you start realizing, yeah, that person might work here. Uh, that person certainly couldn't come here. They they, 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 they enjoy drama way too much, or whatever <laughs> it might be.
3: Well, that seems like that's it. They, you. A lot of times, we hire people because they, you know, they're they're so. Um, I don't know. They're they're great salespeople. They can sell us in the interview. It seems like what we want that charisma, that enthusiasm. But we also need them to be able to work, and we also need them to be able to work well with others. I know another point you bring up is that you know great teams manage dysfunction. They manage right. their friction. They don't just the leaders don't just turn away and kind of allow them. You know, I guess just to. Beat each other up. They actually manage it. They handle it. How? Wh- what do you suggest about dealing with strong personalities in, in a workplace?
2: Well, the first thing that has to happen, again, you, and you, you you hit it right on the head. Uh, as a leader, the leader of your of your team, the leader has to be uh, willing to step in and say, "By the way, I see this happening, and I want to address it. Um, and I, I want, I'd like the three of us to talk about it." I, I tell a story in the book about. Uh, I'm not a big NASCAR guy. I don't know a lot about auto racing, but I do know that of the last 15 years, the best team in auto racing is the team that that Jimmy Johnson drives uh, his race car for Rick Hendrick Motorsports. Mm. Uh, but a few years ago, Jimmy Johnson was was having an issue with his his uh, crew chief, right? And that's the person that is really kind of the non-driver lead of the team, uh, and uh, and that guy's name is Chad Knaus. And the owner of the team saw the friction, right? Which all of us can generally see friction in our organizations. But instead of letting, instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to hope this goes away, I'm going to hope these guys work it out, uh, he summoned them to a meeting. And when he brought them in, the two guys showed up, and there was a quart of milk and a plate of cookies <laughs> and some Mickey Mouse plates on the table. And the, and the owner of the team said, by the way, if we're going to act like children, we're going to eat like children, <laughs> and so we're going to sit here over milk and cookies, and we're going to talk about what's going on on this team. So he addressed it, but he did it in a way that allowed yeah. everybody to. And these two guys went on to win six Sprint Cup titles, which it's you know huge. no one was even close in that space. Uh, but they did so because they because a leader saw friction and chose not to close his eyes you know, put his fingers in his ears and hope it went away.
3: Because the friction doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? It, it also could be, you know, the energy you need. It could be the spark you maybe need.
2: Absolutely. Often, I mean, that's that's one of the things we talk about often is that, is that friction is, when you say friction on your team, most people immediately put that in the negative category. But the truth is sometimes friction is a healthy expression of uh, of. Of competitiveness, or of of strong personalities, and and those are not necessarily bad things. They just have to be they have to be reined in into the better the the better the betterment of the of the of the greater good than uh, than the individual desire to be the uh, you know yeah. to be dysfunctional.
3: Man, um, it's it really it, it's such a People are hard anyway. Then you put, like, t- 20 of them on a team, and then it gets a little, a lot more complicated. That's why we and need then a, a, a and then pro. It,
2: and then sometimes if you let that team ex- experience some success, yeah. then it gets really
3: bad. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, and then they cement in their ways, too. We're speaking with Don Yeager, author of the book Great Teams, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. You can go to his website, com. We'll continue the discussion after the break. Stick with us, folks. We're talking high performance. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Wow, I tell you, it's not easy. It's one thing to have a relationship, right? It's it's another to you know make a dyad or a marriage work effectively. It's another thing to make a team or then an organization and then to have success on top of it and some egos on top of it and then pay people to do it. It gets crazy. So we've asked a True Blue expert to come in and, and uh, work with us Don Yeager is joining us and he's talking about uh, his latest book, Um Great Team, sixteen high performing uh, sixteen things high performing organizations do differently, and he's walking us through the leadership uh you know, lessons one oh one. Don, thanks for being back with us.
2: Matt, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity to to, to discuss this, this is just such such engaging and fun stuff. I, I'm, I'm I'm grateful to be part of it.
3: What well, it is, and you make it I think a lot easier. I mean, we get into there's so many books out there. You, by the way, to to have as many New York Times bestsellers as you do, you're doing something right, Don.
2: <laughs> well, I've been I've been lucky. I mean, I can't. Uh, if you'd have told me many years ago, I'd be lucky enough to have one uh, New York Times bestseller. I'd be a New York Times bestseller. I'd be. Uh, I'd have pinched myself, and, <laughs> and now I'd actually, I'm. Uh, I heard your intro. I, I think the, I think the publisher sent out the wrong note. Oh, actually, at number nine.
3: Are that, you nine that, now? Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. That's, I mean, Perfect. the average book, Don read. I think people read the average book has about ninety cells, and yours, obviously, doing okay.
2: We we uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we've been very blessed. That's so, great. And well, actually, I have to tell you, I know yeah. we've got a mutual. Um, Connection here. I know of your relationship with the Franklin Covey yeah. organization. love that. And, uh, and several years ago, uh, the Covey family, uh, Sean and Stephen Mr. and uh, and the the entire, uh, the, the all nine children, uh, selected me to write their father's biography.
4: Oh and, wow! And
2: so I have been working on that over the last few years. And when
3: is uh, that out?
4: Uh,
2: hopefully next year. Uh, we have we're in the we're in the final stages of the writing, but it is a powerful.
3: Amazing. Opportunity
2: uh, to get the chance to work with Dr. Covey, and then to get to learn uh, about how, before he led millions, uh, he led nine. Yeah, which is really what the, what it's about. It's, uh, it's a pretty. It's a it's a powerful. Uh, it, be, it might actually be worthy of being
4: back on your show. No,
3: you know what? It, it is for sure worthy of that. We'll have you back for that book. Plus, as I've been looking through all of your other books, there's so many topics we, we've got to have you back on because – I'm old. No, I'm old. you're not. You're just well-read. You're just well-versed you're, you're well is what you are, Don. Yeah, for sure we've got to have you. And what an honor to to have, to have write Stephen Covey's biography. Amazing. One of the things that um, I learned in in leadership as I would go out and work with companies, it's one thing to like you know get everybody a purpose statement, get people kind of on the same page – but then it's the idea that they have to change, and they have to embrace change, because it's almost like sometimes you're going to get your team going, and then out of the blue, something's going to uh, sneak up on you and create the change. How, how, do you, how do you instill that? How do you get a team to be adaptable and changeable?
2: Well, I think the, the first thing, again, is mindset, right? It's that, it's that willingness that it's not about how we do it, it's about what will what will what will ultimately get us where we need to go uh what will ultimately bring us to the right result and if you if instead of being caught up in how we do it you're more uh you're you're intrigued by fascinated by can't wait to figure out how we get there then what you end up with is the ability to to have people um say you know yeah i got it but i got this i got this creative idea i got um you know what if we tried this and if if from a leadership standpoint, if, if those who uh, have an opportunity to to first uh, step on that idea like a bug, which unfortunately too too many leaders do, if their reaction is "Let me hear more," mm. uh, then you are you're opening the door for an environment where change will be seen not as a negative but as um, uh, an extension of your growth.
3: Mm. Yeah, then it's then the change is just new opportunities, new markets, new right. new money,
2: right? Yeah, a way of, uh, gosh, you know what? I had never thought of that. When's the last time you heard a leader say that? Right. Uh, when you, but the great ones do. Yeah. The Great ones say, you know, I I had not, um, I I hadn't really thought that that might be something that might work. Well, let's let's explore it further, right? That doesn't mean um John Wooden was a great basketball coach at UCLA yeah. and and he and I had uh, a a wonderful 12-year long relationship that led to a book that we wrote together and and he used to say that one of the things that was important to him was that when an assistant coach or someone came with a creative idea or some way to do something well first of all, his answer was never no right he didn't he didn't believe you should start there you should you should the next question should be let's explore that and tell me more about why you think it would work, and, and he would do that mm-hmm. because he a wanted to learn from them, but b he wanted to understand how passionate they were about the idea because a lot of people will throw an idea at you that they've not thought through, and pretty quickly it becomes evident that it's not that great an idea <laughs> because they've not thought it they just it was an idea, but it wasn't anything that could truly be executed upon
4: mm.
2: if you uh, but if you are willing to to answer most comments like that with uh, tell me more. Let, let's let's think through that. Let's then you you create within your team an opportunity for people to want to bring you ideas, right? For people yeah. who want to be willing because they recognize that change and their participation in it
3: could be healthy, and they could be part of it. And they, I guess they sense you're open. They sense you're you're willing to explore. Correct. Yeah, I've seen many a culture where the ideas end up leaving the organization because the culture is closed.
2: Yeah, they're going to take that, that good idea. They're going to go somewhere else.
3: Mm. And again, that's that's uh, money lost, money down the drain. And ideas and, and actually influence, right? Reach. Talk about one of the things you mentioned is that uh, I guess it's one of the great things that effective or healthier organizations do and, and higher performing organizations do differently. They speak a different language. What do you What do you mean by that? You have an entire chapter on that.
2: I do, yeah. Because again, I, and, and and this is an extension of that, right? This how you react when someone brings you an idea. Uh, you know, there are most most organizations, many organizations. The uh, you know, someone of some level of influence might say, you know, what I, I don't want to even let- that's that's I'm, I'm caught up too caught up in where we are. But but as far as ex- speaking a different language, it's often around how we handle how the great teams handle. Um, mistakes, right? Right. Uh, the example that I use uh, as a key part of the opening of that chapter is the Seattle Seahawks and Pete Carroll. Um, I spent time with Coach Carroll and the Seahawks studying how they have been, how they've turned that franchise into what is today one of the models in the NFL of consistency. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the things that, that came up was they have an entire uh, when coach Carroll brings an assistant on the team you know he says first off I don't care how you've done it before I don't care how you've talked to players before you will not here's how it will work here Hmm. Uh, no one is doing what they wanted no one's doing this job to fail right so no wide receiver runs out and drops a pass because he wants to right So we will not, when they come back to the sidelines, berate them for being an idiot because they dropped the pass. They didn't do it because they wanted to. They did it, and we need to teach them how to make sure they do it better in Mm. the future. So we will speak differently to them when they fail. And, uh, and, and, And when you begin that instruction, and then I went and studied other teams, and I learned that how even great business leaders, Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines, he Is a master when challenge comes his way, of not f- uh, of flipping the conversation almost immediately into what what can we learn from this? How can we improve? How can we make sure we don't do it again? Uh, a- as opposed to whose fault is it? Who, who can we pin this on? You know, if I've got if I've got to announce it to the press, uh, you know, uh, whose head can I chop? Yeah. Um, which is what most people are doing today in most environments so the great teams actually have flipped the conversation when it comes to uh, improvement.
3: Yeah, they, I guess they they think it it works because you know maybe they're dealing with pros or they're dealing with people that can still make it work, but I guess they're not optimizing, right? They're not leveraging the other approach of language.
2: Right, because what they're what they're what they're saying to them is Hey, and how many times have you seen a you know, player come to the sidelines? Do you think anybody in, in professional football intends to fumble? No way. Do you think any quarterback meant to throw an interception? No. So given that when you insult them for their, for their action, you're really chipping away at your, uh, at your belief in their professionalism and that's the way that's the way the mind is wired if you if you treat and yet that is the model that too many places follow today if you fail is it, we we have to blame somebody we have to we have to put it on you you got to you got to feel the pain because mm. i'm going to have to feel the pain when i when i talk to the press afterward
3: yeah it's 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 almost like redirecting the pain right <laughs> trying yeah. to spread out the pain so it's not all on you but i guess leaders have to Take the pain. I mean, it was yeah. the, he missed, made a mistake.
2: Just... Yeah, the great the great leaders, uh, and, but I love that. I mean, as I watched it too, I mean, literally, you watch, uh, you know. Uh, and I watched. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use a specific example. I watched a in practice, uh, a wide receiver go out and drop a pass, right? And I watched his assistant coach when the wide receiver came to the sidelines, head down, expecting what he gets at most other NFL training camps. Right. Yeah. Which is, dude, what what is up with you? I mean, how, how do you? Uh, where where are your hands today? Did you leave at home? Or you know, there's some kind of sarcastic remark. And instead, the assistant coach says, "Hey, you know, uh, do you remember this morning when we went through this particular drill on tape? We talked about three steps this way, hard cut to your left, extend your left arm further than your right. Just remember, now you're going to get another shot at this. Remember to remember that that's the way this mm. is to be done.
3: Yeah." that's huge. And,
2: and, and the guy's and the guy looks differently when he looks up at the coach because right. he's the and this was a player who had been on several rosters so he had not probably ever been treated this way. And uh and it, and, and I watched him go off to have a great practice.
3: Yeah, so. that's good. That's good psychology. Yeah. As we as we wrap it up Don, what would you say is the one thing – the one thing – I mean of everything you, you you know in the book that you wrote, great teams, uh, 16 things, high-performing organizations do different. What's the one thing we need to make sure we remember that will that will maybe take us the farthest when it comes to building a high-performing organization?
2: That, and it's the one we started out with. It's that idea that the best teams uh, are, are rallied around a sense of purpose. And this is extremely important, even more important, as we begin to be overtaken by the millennial generation in our workplace. Yeah. You know, almost every study out there, uh, the millennials will rate uh, what they earn for a living, sometimes as low as sixth. Wow. The reason they go to work for a company or stay at a company. But going to work for a company where they believe what they do matters That's number one. So you have to be able to express to others why what we do matters, who it matters to. And the better you are at that, the better you'll be at building a great
3: team. Mm. Great thoughts. Don, thank you so much for your great work. We will for sure have you back on many of your other books and excited to see the biography on Stephen Covey.
2: Thanks,
3: Matt. Take care, Don Yeager is his name. Go to his website, donyeager.com, nine New York Times bestsellers. Folks, if you had any idea how hard that is. That's uh, that's quite the feat. We will be back, giving you more ideas, more information on how to live healthier lives. Stick with us.
4: Knock, 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 knock. One, two, three, and four. As I knock, knock, knock upon the big london. Welcome
3: back, everybody. A little knock, knock music for you. Why, you ask? Because it is Tell a Joke Day. August 16th is the day we celebrate telling a joke. It's also the day we finally figure out why the chicken crossed the road. Last hour, we figured out why the chicken crossed the playground. It was to get to the other slide. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, and you particularly did not like that one. Well, those weren't even knock-knock jokes, so I'm excited this hour... To celebrate uh, Tell a Joke Day, because today, right now, we're going to be doing knock-knock jokes, which usually these have me rolling. So, Jeffrey Simpson, enlighten us with a knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? To who? To who who? To whom? And I totally botched that joke. <laughs> yeah. That's so the joke is knock-knock, who's there? Yeah. To to who? Oh, yeah. To whom? To who who? This is a grammatical joke. That... <laughs> okay, but see, see, now let's just... Let's see, just, now it's even funnier, right? It's hilarious. That yeah. is the best joke you've told today. Because <laughs> the joke was on <laughs> Jeff so. Okay, uh, uh, so I would have said to, and you would have said to who. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay uh, let's try another knock-knock joke, because I'm sure your next one... Do you want to just take a second and think it through? <sighs> Okay, I'm good. Okay, here we go. Hang on, folks. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting dyslexic cow. Interrupting dyslexic. Oh, mo. Cow. <laughs> That was funny. Do you need a minute? (laughs) That was funnier. That was funnier. (laughs) Okay. So, by the way, that's a good one for the people to remember to take home. Yeah. Take that one home. Dyslexic interrupting cow. Yes. Okay, good, good, good. Let's do another one. These are great. Knock, knock. Who's there? Britney Spears. Britney. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oops. I did it again.
2: Anyone? Anyone?
3: Um, I don't, <laughs> Jeff, maybe we didn't communicate. Uh, it's tell a joke day. They should be like, like funny. Like these should be the ones that like, ugh, you, they just, you have people just laughing. Okay. Okay. I've got one more that we can use right now. Yeah. Okay. What is it? What do you call a cow that has just given birth? What do you call a cow that's just given birth? I don't know. Decaffeinated. <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's good okay well uh, happy joke day hmm. get out there folks tell the joke today today's the day